This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane, recently transported in from Studio 2 with the radiotherapy team. Uh, welcome. This is a science program. We've got you for an hour. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Thanks for coming in. Uh, no worries. Although I, I was really terrified this morning when I walked in and, and I hear uh, the, the live feed and I hear <laughs> Dr. Shane in the background and I'm looking at my watch going, I'm on time. Did the Victorian Parliament pass something and now we're on the same time scale as Queensland? What happened? Am I late? But yeah. as it turns out, your dulcet tones were just on a different show. Well, it was, um, you know, every now and then there's an empty seat and if I see an empty seat, I jump in. I yeah. can respect yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good fun. But folks, uh, we have a, a really important show for you today. Um, I I did a fantastic interview. Geez, that's self-promoting, isn't it? I did an interview that was fantastically fun for there me um, during the week with Ben Goldiger, and he is coming out early next year um, as a result of the Atheist uh, Foundation. They're bringing it, him in for a show, which is going to be fantastic, and we'll post some details to that on our Facebook site. But he's he's awesome. He's I am so excited about this. The moment I heard he was going to be on the show, I went and listened to his 15-minute TED Talk about bad science, and oh my goodness, he is a brilliant speaker. I can't wait to hear this. Yeah, so be, um, I don't want to give too much away. So um, without further ado, I will hand over to uh, the interview that we recorded during the week. It'll be in two parts. We'll take a break during the middle because it's, uh, it's quite detailed, but it's a lot of fun. He's an absolutely spectacular communicator, so enjoy. Three, triple Our guest today is Ben Goldiker. Ben is a British physician, academic and science writer. Many would know Ben's work in his column in The Guardian titled Bad Science and the book of the same title. He has a very strong family background from Australia and he's currently based at Oxford. Ben, it's wonderful to speak to you today on Triple R. Thanks for joining us. Hey, hi, thanks for having me. And look, I should warn you in advance, I slip into an Australian accent when I'm talking to Australians. Don't think that I'm mocking you. It's unconscious and it's beyond my control. <laughs> well, if I slip into a British accent, uh, that'll be a minor miracle, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> um, ben, ben, just give us a bit of your backstory because uh, you're an epidemiologist. So I'm going to ask you how you got to that point and also what is an epidemiologist? I'm sure a lot of our listeners probably aren't aware. Uh, well, so epidemiology comes from the word epidemic and it's the science of... Um, how we know if something's good for you or bad for you. So there's infectious diseases epidemiology, which is tracing epidemic infection through populations. But there's also non-communicable disease epidemiology, which is looking at the causes of lung cancer, for example, and establishing that that's um, cigarette smoking or, or any number of other things, looking at the causes of obesity, but also the impact of obesity on health and so on. Um, and the bit that I work in in particular is the very applied end. It's It's been called clinical epidemiology, but really it's evidence-based medicine. So that is looking at um, uh, how do we identify areas where there's uncertainty about which treatments work best, how do we conduct good quality randomized trials to make sure that they are a fair test of which treatment uh, works best? How do we bring all of that evidence together? And then really importantly and very badly neglected is how do we put knowledge into action? Mm. And how did you get into this? Because you're a clinician by training, as I understand it. So this must have been a sort of secondary career move for you. Yeah, so I've kind of fallen around over the years and I always feel a little bit nervous when anybody applies an, a, a 
sort of job description noun. In medicine, we're quite careful not to call people schizophrenics. We say it's a person with schizophrenia. And I suppose, um, precious though it might sound, I'd prefer to be called a person who does epidemiology or a person who does psychiatry or a person who does medicine rather than an epidemiologist. Um, but uh, I guess I went to medical school. And then um, while I was in medical school, like most people who are doctors, I think I I kind of accepted the contents of lectures and medical textbooks as canonical, as if they were a canon of true facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was only after I started to practice that I began to really get under the hood of where that knowledge came from and began to realise that in reality, a lot of it was actually much more shaky than it had been presented as being. Um, so... At around the same time as that, I started writing a column in the Guardian newspaper in Oxford, um, sorry, in England, called, um, it's the middle of the night here, it's the morning for you. So I started writing a column for the Guardian called Bad Science, which was about unpicking dodgy claims um, in mainstream media, but also dodgy claims by PR companies and politicians and drug companies and quacks and so on. Mm. And hand in hand, really, um, with writing that and getting more and more kind of technically sophisticated at doing takedowns of dodgy behavior there. Um, I was also um, going through various bits and pieces of training, including postgraduate training in epidemiology and medical statistics. Um, So in some respects, I kind of got trained up as a, as a debunker in the public realm in uh, in parallel to being trained up as a debunker in the in the academic realm right um and then from there have kind of uh, swung out in all kinds of strange directions including government reports on how to do randomized trials better and that kind of stuff yeah now when when you took on this role of of writing this column bad bad science i mean in, in a career sense it must have been almost like walking in front of a bus i mean this is not something that academics or clinicians tend to do to question you know the the very basis of some of these fields what was it like when you first started doing that well i suppose in the first instance i was writing about softer things where if you were going to take a very sort of political stance you might assume that the the more conservative end of the medical and scientific community would just go, oh, fine, he's he's going after people that we don't care about. He's going after people we laugh at, like, mm. like homeopaths. And so in some respects, by the time I started writing about, in, in very serious terms about shortcomings by the, by the medical and academic community, um, I already had a reasonable degree of, I suppose, soft political powers, maybe a bit, pompous but uh, just a degree of kind of cultural capital popular support um and so that in turn i think made it harder for people to be dismissive although at the same time i mean of course people try to be and i you know i've been attacked um in very unkind terms by very large numbers of people i mean actually one of the nice things about having a um about being an an equal opportunities debunker one of the nice things about going for bad behavior by drunk companies but also bad behavior by alternative healers and quacks going for journalists and for politicians 
is that um, you know you get you get smeared and attacked by both the quacks and the drug companies, and none of them quite know what to make out of the fact that you breach their normal mm. um, uh, their normal kind of assumptions about um, about what the politics of it all should be. You know, because quacks assume that. If you attack a quack, you're on the side of Big Pharma, which I very clearly aren't. Um, but um, but also, I think it's quite. Um, I think it's it's the, there's a sort of implicit comparison. If you're if you can show that that big multi-billion-dollar drug companies are using tricks to mislead that are structurally pretty similar to the tricks that cheap street corner alternative healers use. Then actually, that's also quite powerful and quite useful. I think. Mm. I, I suppose part of your credibility there comes from the equality with which you debunk these people. I mean, it's very hard for them to come back if you are debunking the exact people that they would normally debunk themselves, because they have to both give you credibility for that, but also that you know you're, you're coming at them. So, how, how do they yeah. respond? I mean, I guess they're just personal attacks in in that sense. Then. Well, in principle, what you're saying is true, but obviously, in reality, nobody ever really gives you a free pass. Or goes, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, and nor would you want one. I mean, it's really important to 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 say absolutely up front that um, you know sometimes people will make criticisms of your work that um, that have a, an element of of truth in them. And I'm not thinking of any particular episode, but I think you do have to work quite hard, especially if you are subject to a lot of really kind of um, melodramatic and colourful mm. denunciations, um, not just on the internet, but also in print. Um, yeah. You have to work quite hard at um, at keeping your eyes and your ears and even, dare I say it, your heart open to the fact that um, that sometimes somebody will say something that is reasonable. So you can't just dismiss it all. Um, Martin Amis, the novelist, has got quite a good line where he says, when it comes to reviews, you, you've got to be wearing a bulletproof jacket, but just before the bullet hits... You want to have a quick look at it and go, okay, has it got anything useful written on it? And then if it doesn't, you go, fine, splat, <laughs> and it switches against the Kevlar. Um, so it's a, it's a bit like that, you know. Yeah. But, and also, yeah. I mean, you, it's it's interesting to, to, to look at both the commonalities and the differences between how different um, how different groups of science abuser um respond to criticisms with with alternative therapists i think it's fair to say that it is almost always lurid and childish and mm. irrational um that's actually i think one reason why they get so much attention online i mean it's it's kind of disappointing to me that for really hugely important and very obvious structural flaws in the way that evidence-based medicine work like for example the ongoing global scandal of clinical trial results being routinely and legally withheld from doctors researchers and patients that doesn't get the same kind of um routine joyful blogger attention as a, a, a rather seedy street corner homeopath or yeah. or vitamin pill peddler, and that is in part because when you criticise a vitamin pill peddler, they issue these very colourful denunciations. They accuse you of being part of a global conspiracy. They say things that are really demonstrably untrue. They'll overreact in 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 really kind of melodramatic ways, and I think that draws in a lot of um, 
a lot of discussion and debate and heat because it's it's sort of enjoyable and colourful, but it's also tangible and easy. Whereas when you're when you're going after targets that have uh, in in reality probably done more harm, although I'm reluctant to rank harm. I think I think even if one pill peddler or one journalist writing about quackery doesn't harm patients directly, they still have a, a very serious negative cultural impact. They create a culture of permissiveness around how we how we use evidence. But nonetheless, um, the more austere an organisation's response is to you, the harder it is to get um, to get people to pay attention to their crimes. Um, so actually, that's a long way round of saying. People can be quite critical and childish and unpleasant, but in in most cases, they're actually sort of doing you a favour. Mm. Um, and, and the extent to which my shtick has been successful is partly because of that. I mean, w- the, the, um, the basic structure of what I do fundamentally is I find, um, I find a per- an interpersonal squabble as, um, as a, a kind of... Um, eye-catching hook for then a, a detailed description of an interesting methodological or statistical issue. God, shame. When I, when I explain it like that, I mean, I feel like I should just give up writing forever. Nobody will ever read anything like that. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is the basic structure of the, out, of the operation. You know, yeah, don't get yeah. don't me. A lot of this seems to have almost infiltrated its way into the very system that we all operate in to some degree. And I think there's, a, there, there's almost a a deliberate um i'm sure you've probably seen this but uh you know that the terms correlation and causation have almost merged into one for some of these storytellers as as we see them in the sort of information they they use and what they put out and i mean in my view the the general public is often not i mean we have some very educated members of the general public but a lot of them are just not not trained in such a way that they can you know, look between these two elements of correlation and causation and work out the difference. I mean, is that what you're seeing when you look into some of these these issues, especially around big pharma, but also just in general around medicine and, and what we see in the media? Well, when you're talking correlation and causation, I suppose you mean what stories like people who eat lots of vegetables um, have less cancer and fewer wrinkles and therefore this particular vegetable is brilliant and you should take it. You mean that kind of story? Or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think when, when we look at what engages the public most, I suppose, in, in, in the medical professions and in, in what's available to them and what they should and should not do for their health, it yeah. you know, these things get very confused. And I think that then opens the crack in the door for some of this other dodgy behaviour to sneak through. Yeah, so whenever you see a misleading science story, it's it's important to remember, I think, that there is often a whole pipeline of um, disappointing behaviour by multiple different actors that has led to that story um, uh, getting prominence. Yeah. At, at the very tail end, stories like, you know, childish stories about how a particular vegetable or a particular berry um, will have amazing healing properties are obviously very... Um, just intuitively, emotionally very attractive to people. So uh, to an extent, I think we have to say that, that the public are, have to bear some responsibility, um, or at least they're part of the explanation of why that kind of story gets so much coverage and why it's so high up the rankings on websites. Um, when you move back in the chain of production, obviously the next step is the journalist and the editor. Um, often journalists will get very cross with editors. So there are there are parties of um 
in, of journalists and science communicators in, in England where I can't really go because there are too many people who just get cross in the face um, because I've, I've written critically about what they've said in the past. But one, one thing that journalists who've written misleading stories will often say is, look, you don't understand. I work for the Daily Mail. The rent is due. I have to get a story in. And the editor says they want this story with this spin and I don't have any choice but to meet that. Now, I think those kinds of conversations tell you a number of things. Firstly, they tell you that editors aren't particularly the, – the stories aren't accidental. A lot of people in the process know that they're producing misleading um, coverage. Um, secondly, um, though, I think there's an issue of um, responsibility on the part of the journalist and also self-defense as an employee in the modern world. Um, so I've always been really aware of the power of having – um, multiple professions. Now, to an extent, it's it's an accident of history because I'm also distractible, and so I like doing more than one job at a time. Right. But actually, if if your if your only source of income is writing as a science journalist or a health journalist, then you really are very vulnerable to having to write stupid stories because your editor will come to you and say, "I insist that you cover this stupid academic paper, and I insist that you cover it in this stupid way." And in an ideal world, you'd be able to say, well, actually, you know, I've also qualified as a plumber and I don't need right. your money. Yeah, I'd yeah. rather kill than write that story. <laughs> People tend not to be in that position, I suppose. And, and that's actually one of the things that I think makes online coverage by, um, by self-appointed editors often superior to what you see in mainstream media when it comes to health and science coverage. Because mm. first of all, they're not really trying to please anyone. They're not trying to please the public. They're not trying to please uh, an editor. They're just trying to produce interesting stuff that's of interest to them. Also, I suppose they have a degree of freedom. So, you know, our journalists, I think, could do better and their editors could do better. But then one step back from that, uh, you often have universities and academic journals releasing press releases, which are profoundly misleading, which go beyond the claims of the original academic paper. And there's actually very good evidence on that. And I wrote an editorial in the British Medical Journal to accompany a very good um, bit of research about the extent to which um, uh, academic institution press releases and journal press releases um, are misleading and misrepresent and overstate the findings of the papers that they are about. And then um, one step before that, you also get just very simply bad quality scientific research being published in academic journals. Um, it, particularly, I have to say, in the field of nutritional epidemiology, the endless stories about whether one particular type of diet is associated with one particular disease outcome, which is vulnerable to all kinds of flaws, not least of which you're not comparing like with like. So people who have freakishly good diets um, often also uh, live healthily in um, in other respects. Uh, but also, if you measure enough um, behaviours, uh, and if you also measure a sufficiently large number of uh, clinical medical outcomes, then eventually, just purely by the play of chance, you will find a positive correlation between one of the many health behaviours that you're measuring and one of the many health outcomes that you're measuring. Mm. And mm. It, that is a problem which which is cuts to the absolute core of everything that we do in science and the whole of the reproducibility crisis. But it's extremely important and it's a really important part of the whole production chain. 
uh, of what leads to, to misleading scientific research uh, reports in mainstream media. And the end product of that, particularly with the unending cycle of stories about um, how you should eat a handful of Brazil nuts every day to make sure you're not deficient in selenium and have healthy looking curly hair or whatever it is this um, this afternoon. The end product of all of those stories is, I think, patients and the public feeling very, very overwhelmed. And actually, one of the most powerful stories on 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 that phenomenon um, is from a, a very interesting bit of survey data from the World Cancer Research Fund, where they talk to people about their understanding of what um, medical researchers think constitutes a healthy lifestyle. And the survey recipients said that they thought half of all respondents believed that scientists were always changing their mind about what constitutes a healthy lifestyle. And a quarter of them agreed with the statement, because scientists are always changing their mind about what a healthy lifestyle looks like, you might as well ignore it all. Now, we can set aside whether or not you can trust people when they try and give you excuses about why they're not living healthily. But for the figure of half of all people thinking that science is constantly changing its mind about what constitutes a healthy lifestyle, that is very, very disturbing and concerning because science does not constantly change its mind about that. The science has been pretty settled. The only thing that you can be that you can be really confident on is the broad brush stuff like eat fruit and veg, don't get fat, don't smoke, don't drink too much, get some exercise. Beyond that, actually, it is rather hard to give any solid evidence based advice. Mm. But mm. in the process of barraging people with encyclopedias worth every week of spurious associations and spurious health claims, what you do is, is foster a sense, I think, in people that it's all really difficult and really complicated. When it's not, it's it's just a matter of doing what your mum probably told you to do when you were a kid to live healthily. Yeah, I think we've also moved into this game and certainly we're seeing this in, in the area of climate as well where the, the mere idea that science might evolve and, and change its current position on something seems to lower the public's view of its credibility and that in itself is 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 quite disturbing because the reality is the reason science is so valuable is because it evolves, not because of the opposite. So we have to somehow pull ourselves back from that brink and um and have have the, the you know the real belief in science that um that you know it, it is done effectively and as you say there's some obviously some dodgy players here there and everywhere but that's true of any field of expertise Three. You are listening to Triple R, and folks, uh, we're partway through playing you the interview I did during the week with Ben Goldica, and I'm going to play the second half for you now. I hope you're enjoying it. Here we go. Ben, let's talk a bit about clinical trials, because that's where you've uh, done a, a fair amount of work. What is the big issue at the moment with the way clinical trials are conducted, and how bad is the problem, and what do you, what do you think we need to do to resolve it? Can you just sort of run us through that, because a lot of people won't be aware of how these things are, are currently going. Well, look, there are problems at every step of the pipeline in evidence-based medicine. So medicine presents itself as being a very data-driven enterprise. We we essentially claim that we identify um, uncertainty wherever it exists, and then we do randomized controlled trials, good quality, fair tests to find out which treatments work best. Then we gather all of that information together, give summaries 
out to decision makers, which means doctors and patients. And then we monitor to make sure that people have changed their behavior to keep in step with the best quality of evidence. And we fail at every step of that process. So we fail to identify the situations where there's the most uncertainty and to do good quality randomized trials. Um, when we do do trials, often they have flaws by design in such a way that they're no longer a fair test of which treatment works best. We've also permitted them to be needlessly expensive. So we regulate low-risk trials of commonly used treatments in the same way that we regulate um, much more dangerous trials of brand new chemotherapy drugs. Um, but then even when clinical trials do get done, we permit them to be either misreported or to be left entirely unreported with their results entirely buried. So it's the latter of those that I spent a couple of years building up a campaign called the All Trials Campaign around. So it is extraordinary, really, to reflect that this remains true. But the results of clinical trials, even when a trial has been conducted and completed, can be left unreported. And over the course of the last 30 years, 35 years now, people have been writing academic journal papers complaining about how much of a problem this is. We've had various things set up, like clinical trial registers. So you have to register a trial before you begin to make sure that everybody knows that you've actually done this study. That doesn't mean that you have to report it, but it means that at least we've got some hope of identifying where the, where the, um, the buried results might lie. Um, we very latterly had legislation um, and also guidelines that try to say that people have to report their clinical trials. But nothing that we've tried has worked. Mm. There has potentially, arguably, been some progress just for the very most recent trials. So reporting rates, when you look at the cohort studies that have been done today, including the most recent and large ones, like a very large um, study of a couple of thousand trials in NIH um, and major universities in the US, when you get a cohort, a group of trials, which you know have been conducted and completed, and then you go and start looking for the results, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three years after the trial is completed. Overall, the research tends to find that about half the results are missing. Mm. And, and furthermore, much more disturbingly, for the subset of studies where you're able to establish by some other means whether the results of that clinical trial were in broad terms positive or negative, flattering or unflattering, you tend to find that it's the studies with more flattering, more positive results that tend to be disseminated, that tend to be published, and it's the studies with negative results that tend to go unreported. Ben, is that, now, is that um, consistent, though? I mean, I, I, I hear the issue there, but one of the things that's always bothered me is the fact that we don't really have a mechanism for science in general to report yeah. on experiments that don't work, and that, that's throughout all yeah. of science, not just in the clinical trial space. I mean, is this just an extension of, of that mindset? Absolutely it is, yes, without question. Um, but also with the, with the added um, concerns around conflict of interest. So conflict of interest means that a, a company may, for example, have a financial interest mm. in making a drug seem better than it really is. And, and there's, there's statistical evidence. You can see that pattern in the data. But also there are memos, for example, that have come out under various um, uh, court proceedings over the years where, where people are caught within companies sending each other memos. I mean, it's an insane thing for them to have done, but sending each other memos saying things like, 
Christ, we've got to keep this trial out of the big systematic reviews and meta-analyses uh, in fairly open terms. Mm. But also a conflict of interest can include having an ideological commitment to a particular treatment. So if you're a surgeon who's invented a particular surgical technique or is only trained in one surgical technique, you might be very ideologically committed to that. You might have an ideological commitment to a particular kind of talking treatment for depression or a particular kind of public health intervention to try and prevent transmission of a, of a sexually transmitted disease. So people can have conflicts of interest all over the shop. The one thing that is very dissimilar to other areas of science, however, is that it is fair to say it's hard to publish negative findings in uh, very kind of abstract and theoretical areas of, of, of science, in particular of medicine. In the world of clinical trials, people are falling over themselves to try and get you to report the results of your clinical trials. Yeah, right. And yes, it still doesn't happen. So I think that is actually a very, very important difference that, um, that, that shouldn't be glossed over. And also, when you look at the evidence in the round, um, there's not particularly good evidence, actually, that academic journals are the bottleneck to publication. It's, it's possible that for some researchers, there's a perception that academic journals are the bottleneck. And it may be that to an extent they're a bottleneck. But um, that said, when you actively try to ask people to share the results of their completed clinical trials, you often find that they say no. So, um, so it is an extension of a broader phenomenon, um, as are the other problems that we see with clinical trials, like people switching their pre-specified outcomes, which is a way of um, getting multiple bites of the statistical cherry, exaggerating your findings. Um, but I think for clinical trials, um, the problems are particularly acute, seem to be particularly resistant to people's structural efforts to improve things, and also, of course, are particularly harmful because... Medicine is the ultimate applied science, and this is something that it's often quite difficult to get across to people. Um, you know, we don't we don't do um, trials, we don't do clinical research uh, for for our own sort of personal head scratching interest. This isn't the the business of ivory towers. Uh, Evidence based medicine is, or at least it should be, in my view, a very humble, very practical service industry. We are finding out what works best so that we can tell doctors and patients so that they can use the best treatments. Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> you know, it's it's obviously a bit um, it's, it, it obviously does have uh, consequences for society if a social science researcher or a, or a personality psychologist um, plays fast and loose with their analyses. But actually, if you play fast and loose with your data in 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 medicine and with clinical trials then that is big potatoes yeah ben just before we let you go i just want to touch on the issue of um the ethics around clinical trials and whether or not those trials are optimized where, where we have a scenario where for example a person has a particular illness that you know may or may not be life-threatening but very serious and you have a trial that for those who are you know on the active part of the trial not the placebo the trial is working exceptionally well i mean where, where do the ethics stand there in terms of uh, sort of what i would perceive as a need to move people off the placebo onto the active part of the trial and is that not a more uh, you know effective statistical way to to sort of enhance the trial overall in terms of its testing are we starting to do that or is that something that just doesn't happen 
Well, first of all, I'd like to correct a misconception, which is that clinical trials involve a placebo control group getting getting nothing, getting mm-hmm. getting a dummy a dummy placebo sugar pill. The reality is that for almost everything new that is introduced in medicine, it's not coming into completely uncharted territory. We've usually got something that's effective. You want to compare your new treatment against the best currently available treatment, okay, or at you. the very least, the best currently available treatment at the same price point. Um, now, that's really important because, first of all, it means nobody's getting nothing. But also, it's one of the reasons why you need to have rather large and robustly designed trials that are free from bias because you're trying to optimize medicine. You're not trying to establish a night or day benefit. You know, if if somebody's dying of diabetes in the 1960s, I can pop along as a doctor or a researcher and say, hey, we've just invented insulin. You're not going to die. It's pretty straightforward. Um, And the effect sizes are huge. But actually, these days, you'd be doing a trial of one mechanism for managing people's blood sugar versus another, in which the difference between the two treatments will often be quite modest. So that's why you need large trials. And it's also why you need your trials to be properly conducted, properly pre-registered and properly reported to make sure that the signals you're detecting, which are often very subtle, are true signals rather than noise, which you are misidentifying as a true signal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you asked, do, is it reasonable for people to move on to the most effective of the two treatments once the evidence is in, even if it's before the end of the trial? And the answer is absolutely yes, of course. And, and this happens all the time. Um, and actually, one of the most famous times it ever happened is, is one of the most instructive episodes in the whole of evidence-based medicine. There was a very large trial being conducted a couple of decades ago called the All Hat Trial. And this was an enormous project because it was trying to um, move our research on in the field of um, blood pressure research and cholesterol lowering research to move away from does this drug lower your blood pressure, does this drug lower your cholesterol, and instead measure real world outcomes. So does this drug stop you having a heart attack? Does this drug stop you having a stroke? Does this drug stop you dying? Now, to do a piece of research like that, to do a trial that measures real-world outcomes, is actually much more challenging and much more expensive than doing a trial which measures a blood test. That's firstly because, and this is a problem that's common to all of medical research, very annoyingly, people take a really long time to die. So um, you have to follow them up for a really long time. And in, particularly in the area before electronic health records, following people up for a really long time took just huge amounts of time and effort. People call it old-fashioned shoe leather and door knock epidemiology. You've got to go around to people's houses every six months and go, oh, hello, is Mrs. Murgatroyd still there? Oh, she's moved. Oh, do you know where she's gone? Oh, you don't know where she's gone. Okay, well, did she say anything about a cardiovascular event in the last six months? Um, so it's very expensive and difficult data to collect. Now, Pfizer had a new blood pressure lowering drug, which they were very keen to get real world data on. And by real world data, I mean a robust randomized controlled trial, but where they were measuring real world outcomes like heart attack, stroke and death. And this drug had shown itself to be equally effective to old fashioned cheap blood pressure lowering drugs when you measured outcomes like blood pressure. But they had various reasons for believing that it was going to be better at the real-world outcomes of preventing heart attack, stroke, and death. So they approached the academic team, who were looking at the All Hat trial, which already had a budget of a couple of hundred million dollars. And they said, we'd like to add our new blood pressure drug into the mix. Now, the academics said what academics have said since the dawn of time, which was 
yes, of course. Thank you very much. That'll be $165 million, please. And Pfizer said, okay, well, we really want to do this. So their drug was added into the protocol and the trial trundles along, but it has to be stopped early. And the trial has to be stopped early because Pfizer's drug is so much less effective than the old-fashioned blood pressure lowering drugs that the, the, the trial steering group, the Data Monitoring Committee, feel that it is no longer ethically acceptable for people to continue getting Pfizer's drug. Mm. Now, I say this is interesting because, well, there are a number of features that make this really interesting. Number one, Pfizer are not at fault here. They did absolutely the right thing, and they did something which people don't do often enough. You can get away with having weak evidence that measures things like blood tests to prove that your drug is effective. But all that matters is the impact on people's pain, suffering, disability and death. Mm-hmm. And they really put themselves on the line by paying a very large money, amount of money to, to take a punt on that. So they did absolutely the right thing. The second thing which is really chilling is that it is one of many studies which have proven to us that relying on blood tests like cholesterol lowering, relying on, on laboratory measurements like blood pressure or um, uh, uh, a heart trace, is actually a very risky thing to do because although, st- although those things should in principle be associated with real-world outcomes, often they're not. So Pfizer's drug, which was equally effective at lowering blood pressure, was so wildly worse at preventing the, 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 the problems we were trying to prevent, at preventing heart attack, stroke and death, that it was no longer ethical for them to carry on having it. So it's a real reminder of the importance of doing um, good quality randomised trials measuring real-world outcomes. But lastly, I think it sheds light on a really important phenomenon, which is really underplayed, and it speaks to the need for us to be ambitious in medicine, to not accept that treatments are better than nothing, but rather to go out there and and say, well, we've got to find out what works best, because we should be constantly optimising, because we can, and if we optimise treatments and make sure everybody always gets the best one, then we save huge numbers of lives, and actually it doesn't cost us usually any more money other than it costs us the money and the effort to do the research in the first place but the treatment costs generally aren't that spectacular and the reason that i think this trial shows that is that pfizer's drug it wasn't ethically acceptable to keep giving it to people but it still works it's still better than nothing that data monitoring committee stopped that trial because it wasn't the best treatment available within that trial but people continue to use treatments throughout the whole of medicine which are the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth best drug in class, simply because we don't have systems in place to make sure that we collect good quality data, summarize it together, and get get it out and put into action by decision makers, by doctors and patients. And our failure to do that properly is responsible for phenomenal numbers of lost lives, death, suffering and pain on a biblical scale. But it's not attributable to one surgeon in a lurid TV news story about one incompetent guy. It's not attributable to one person or one company being money grabbing and having one drug that actively does more harm than good. It's it's down to this sort of terrible erosion of good standards in in science and in evidence based medicine, which we've come to accept as normal, but which we really don't need to. Ben, it's a, it's a very disturbing world that we live in, and I have to say it's fantastic to know that you're there fighting this good fight, and I hope that continues. I know you're coming out to Australia early next year. We look forward to that. 
thank you so much for chatting to us today and um, good luck with the kids there. I know it's very late at night and you've been struggling, but uh, we really appreciate your time. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. There you are listening to 3 R, Dr. Shane here. I hope you've enjoyed the interview by Ben uh, Golicker. He was a cool guy to talk to, actually. I, I did it. It was very late at night for him, and he had his baby monitor there on the desk with him, and every now and then we had to take a short break so he could go and check on his kids. It was, it was, yeah, it was cool stuff. So in the end, he actually got his um, wife to take care of the baby monitor because it was getting to the point where he was distracted. So uh, we edited those parts out of the interview. They were probably <laughs> they were fun though. I was I thought about keeping them in, but yeah. Hey, I I think there's an old podcast where I have my son during a nanotechnology <laughs> talk saying something in the background that still bothers you. Like <laughs> ten years later, you still bring it up. It's not a big deal. Uh, now it was a huge week in science. We we it thought was. folks we'd um, do some news at the end today rather than uh, near the beginning, so we'd uh, get the interview out of the way. Uh, but it was. Do you want to start this or should I? Oh, I, Dr. Shen, you, I think you should start it. I I have plenty yeah, of okay. comments, but so. Uh, as some of you, hopefully most of you will know, over 100 years ago now, Albert Einstein predicted the idea that, um, you know, space could warp and you could get these sort of waves that would travel through space um, due to gravity. So, you know, recently, um, you know, back in 2015, now I think September yeah. 2015, um, they turned on the LIGO experiment, which was basically a large um sort of a piece of apparatus called an interferometer. This has essentially, all it does is it has two, I'm going to make this sound really simple, but it's a super complicated piece of technology. It has two arms that are at right angles to one another and you shoot a beam of light up and back these two arms and you measure the time it takes between the two and essentially if it's different for one than the other, then uh, a wave has passed in the direction of one arm and not the other, and by doing that, you can you can work out whether or not one of these waves and, has gone past. And these arms are like half a mile long. And oh yeah, yeah, precisely be, exactly the yeah. same length. Yeah. So so when I say you know simple, what I mean is probably one of the hardest experiments <laughs> the human race has ever done. So yeah, not that hard. And, and, and they have it built in two locations. Yeah, actually, in the three, US. Yeah, and then there's the third Virgo one in Italy. In yeah. Italy. So and and what what the hope would be is that if there was a large enough event out in space somewhere. Um, that event would cause essentially a shockwave in the fabric of space and that that shockwave would come past us and it would affect one of the two arms in this experiment, not the other, and you would then be able to determine that it had gone past. And it seemed at the time as though, you know, literally five minutes or so after they turned this experiment on, we saw the first event of detection of gravitational waves from um, two black holes colliding. And these two black holes that they first saw were, you know, this happened like 13 billion years ago or something, you know, yeah. really, really long time ago. And have been travelling toward. This is the bit I love. These things have been travelling towards us for, you know, over 10 billion years, and we just happened to turn this thing on a few weeks before they went past. Yeah, I, coincidence? I, of course not. No, it's, you know, it's just but, sheer luck. But there were a couple. Um, <laughs> there were a couple points that it, it pinged. It wasn't just they turned it on. Yeah, and they were afterwaves. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's always possible there could have been one event we we did we missed. Oh, when we, we probably missed. It, yeah. We probably missed several. And so since then, actually, there have been um, I think four events that have been detected. So three with the LIGO experiment and one with Virgo. So um, these events are happening around there in the universe, and we have to keep in mind that the universe is incredibly vast. So you know these things do happen. 
But um, they've all been from black holes. So yeah. two black holes colliding, making a bigger black hole, and you get this this pulse. What we saw um, announced this week, and this this was something that I should just I just want to give you the odds of detection here because it has been calculated by certain researchers in the field that the odds of detecting this type of event that they got this week was one in eighty thousand. We haven't had it on long enough statistically. Yeah, you think... Well, well it's random occurrence, yeah. so it could always happen. Yeah, it could always yeah. happen straight away. But anyway, so suffice it to say it's a rare event. And what essentially happened was when you when you have a, a very large star, so larger than our star, and that star explodes and then collapses back in upon itself, um, you get something called a neutron star. And the neutron star is basically a, an old dead star. So it was once a big grand star and it died and became this neutron star, which are, aren't overly bright. And basically the the key thing to the neutron star is that it's incredibly dense. So it, one way to think about it is if you, if you had a handful of neutron star material, just a handful, that would have about the same mass as Mount Everest. Yeah. So think about that one, folks. It'll give you a headache. Just you know, <laughs> try not to think about it for too long. These things are incredibly dense objects, and um, basically they're, they're usually about uh, you know tens of kilometers wide. So what happened in this particular case is two of these neutron stars um, got caught in each other's gravity and circled around each other and got closer and closer and closer and closer, just like the black holes in the previous experiments did, and then eventually they collided and formed into to one object. And when that happened, two things occurred. One was, well, during the course of that happening, there was these gravitational waves that were sent out, so this shock wave in space and time. And in addition to that, there was a bright flash of radiation, so of light and not just the stuff that we can see, but all sorts of things around the spectrum. And so essentially um, what happened, you know, what was announced this this week and it, it happened um, earlier in the year was, in August, was that... Um, both of these things were detected. So this is the first time we've had a scenario where the LIGO system has detected a gravitational wave and at the same time another telescope of a different type, so a telescope that measures photons of light, detected the flash. And so this was very exciting for scientists because it meant it wasn't the black hole collision that they'd seen before. This was something different, something new. And so essentially, um, these two objects collided. They're not that far away for us either. So they're only 130 million light years away, which is, in universe terms, pretty close. Well, what I think is remarkable, not just how close they were, but the types of radiation, mm. because we have different types of radiation that we... So the event happens. The gravity waves we sense first... But the timescales at which we sense the other events is different because light, different right, types of radiation have different speeds of light. Mm. And so first they sense the gamma waves from the NASA probe in space. Yep. I forgot which microscope that was. Telescope, sorry. But, but then later, they it, almost two weeks, they found the X-ray and radio waves. Mm. And in between that, they found light. And, uh, oh, this was amazing about it because it hit all three detectors. This was also the first time. It wasn't just they sensed them at the same time. The three, because it hit all three gravity t detectors, they were able to triangulate the position where, yeah. where in the sky to look. And so that's what everybody else, that like 40 or between like 50 different telescopes, all started to look in the same part of space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this and, is kind of like you're out, you know, you're out in the middle of the ocean and the wave goes past your rowboat. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to work out exactly where the wave came from. Um, but if you, if you had multiple 
locations and everyone could say oh mine came from the left mine came from the right and so forth then you could you could work out vaguely where in the universe it originated and then you make sure some of your telescopes are looking in the right direction so this was this is quite phenomenal the other thing is that um normally these events are very short-lived but this one because of the way it occurs with these stars it lasted for like 100 seconds and in in the times that we're looking at here this is like an eternity like 100 seconds is a really really long time like you've got time to think and do stuff and you know and so forth so this is um it's it's quite um it's quite phenomenal in the sense that uh, these experiments have not been running for too long now and the one in italy has that's been around for a while but it's had a recent upgrade which is why all of a sudden its sensitivity is at a point where it's starting to make these detections and one of the ones in the u.s is the same where there's been a, an upgrade but we're, we're all of a sudden getting to the point where you can see a new type of astronomy emerging so if you think about what normally happens with light, um, it gets obstructed by clouds of dust, by all sorts of material. There's whole lots of reasons why we can't see certain things in the universe because, you know, they're behind other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but gravitational waves don't work that way. Yeah. Gravitational waves will just pass right through. So there's there's a new era of astronomy here being born. And, you know, this latest detection of an event on August 17th. Oh, I should just before you jump in, the thing I love about this is that so this event occurred out in space at the same time that T-Rex was wandering around on the planet. <laughs> so it's taken a while to yeah. get here. That's, you know, put in context, but it's here, you know, and, and we've detected it. Well, as a, as, a chem- as a chemical engineer, the chemistry side of this that got me excited too was this was able not just to confirm things about gravity waves, but also how heavier elements than iron are made. Oh, yeah. And, mm. and, and how that was done was just amazing. So gold, platinum, they're rare elements, and they actually are because they think – this is the process how they get made in the universe. And so these events aren't that frequent. And uh, they were able to detect it because of how the collision glowed in light because it went from blue to a dim red. And that's actually spectroscopically what's predicted when you have those elements present. And I was just, I thought that was amazing. Mm. Uh, and, and the only way they would have known to look for this event and see that over that 100 seconds yeah. was the gravity. And waves. so when you look at the the overall coordination of this scientific endeavor, uh, no one, you know, none of us, even in the media, I remember getting, a, I got a press release a, a week or so ago about this and it said something really exciting was going to be announced. <laughs> and I was like, what? What is that? That's nothing. Well, I, you know, it could be anything. It's, you know, you get those sorts yeah. of things, you go, yeah, right. But it was because the entire world, scientific world involved in this, kept it quiet until 12 scientific papers were all released simultaneously covering all the different elements of this, you know, some of them being yeah. elements, literally, yeah. um, of this particular experiment and what, what it had seen, which it, is just phenomenal. And one paper was all the authors that worked on this, which was half the astronomers in the world, and it's 4,600 authors. Yeah. It's, they all said, together as a group, we're going to share this discovery. Yeah. So next time uh, you ever have the notion to say that scientists can't work together, have a look at that paper because uh, it takes an incredible team of people to do this, some of which are here in Melbourne, some are in other states in Australia, and particularly Perth. And, um, you know, this is the result of over 100 years of research, all starting with some of Einstein and others' work on the fabric of space-time and how it works. And we're now starting to see literally the dawn of a new area of astronomy, which is just fascinating. So there you go.
Fun stuff. Uh, Dr. Ray, thanks so much for coming in. I know uh, I haven't taxed you so much today. It's, we've been, uh, uh, yeah, you and I have been sitting around. Yeah, it's been easy. Oh, it was a great interview to listen to. <laughs> but uh, it was good to talk to Ben. Uh, next week, we've got some fantastic guests coming in, folks. And um, the week after, hopefully, we'll be interviewing Kara Santamaria. Some of you will know who she is. She's the host of the podcast program, Talk Nerdy. Until then, uh, have a great Sunday. I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to hand you over to the team from Eat It. Thanks so much for listening to Triple R. And remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.